Mark from the U.S. You're going to need a SWAT team ready to mobilize. Street-level maps covering all of Florida, a pot of coffee, 12 jammy Dodgers, and a Fez. Because this is the Doctor Who Podcast, and you are most welcome. Well, it's back to Big Finish this week on the Doctor Who Podcast. We talk about two of the missing Sylvester McCoy stories, Animal and Earth Aid. Welcome to episode 113 of the Doctor Who podcast. Now, this is a rather special episode because we'll be discussing two of the unmade lost stories that have been brought to life by the original cast of Doctor Who, the classic series of Doctor Who, uh, and made available by Big Finish. So, in this episode, we'll be talking about Animal and Earth Aid. But before we go anywhere near that, we have to talk to our own animal. Hello, Trev. Oh, hello. And, of course, the man who's responsible for the DWP aid, because he keeps us bandaged and on track. Hello, James. <laughs> hello, Tom. I do wonder how your brain works. But, yes, hello. It, it's wonderful <laughs> to be here. As Tom said, we're going to be looking at the final two stories of uh, the remade season 27. Now, long-term listeners of the Doctor Who podcast, if indeed there is such a thing, uh, may remember Trevor and me talking about the opening two stories to this season on episode 89, and that was back in July this year, where we discussed Thin Ice and Crime of the Century that basically set this season up. And it certainly was a little bit more ambitious than the stories that we saw in season 26, I think. Uh, Most of it was set in Russia, certainly the first story and I I think we've now got into what I think you could probably describe as um, the meat and potatoes of this season. Uh, the characters have, have, have been bedded down. We're, we're fairly familiar with Rain now. She had her first full story uh, in Crime of the Century. Let's not be too delicate about this. Rain and Ace are both quite violent and inventive young women, so it does make for quite an interesting TARDIS crew. So at the beginning of Animal, we wind up on a university campus in response to, well, some rather strange goings on. A river runs through it. Margrave University. It's lovely. It sort of makes me wish I'd gone to a campus out in the country. I had to stay in London. My parents wanted to keep an eye on me for some reason. (laughs) I can't imagine why. I went to King's, actually. Where did you go to university again, Ace? Don't come that with me. Good Lord. You mean you never went? Not even a poly or a technical college? Not even the polytechnic of the third crisp packet on the left. Hmm. What a pity. I've been busy with other things. I'm still attending the School of Life. As indeed we all are. I think this is uh, set in 2001, so considering the previous two stories were set uh, set prior to that, this is, this is the first trip that Rain has been on into her future. And I have to say... The trap that um, many writers uh, have fallen into when they're introducing new companions is is to basically allow the new character 
to adapt to the concept of time travel without any difficulty whatsoever. Uh, and that certainly happened with Charlie Pollard in, in, in Big Finish. Fortunately, it doesn't happen on this occasion and we actually get to experience what time travel is like through Rain's eyes. And they, they arrive at a university, Margrave University, and I just think it's great because Rain just wants to go off and, you know, look at what these new mobile phones are. Of course, she hasn't got a clue what they are and uh, and really get to grips with how society lives 10, 20 years after she's um, she's used to. Yes, I'll go with that. It, it does feel very well constructed. The characters are very well rounded. And that's I think maybe that's one of the shames about Rain Creevy as a character. Um that she didn't get actually make it into the show because unlike some more two-dimensional characters she does actually have a life and a curiosity that that, make, that makes her flesh out and is actually very real no i agree and she's enthusiastic as well uh which was novel there were a lot of companions certainly within uh the the 80s that you weren't completely convinced that they wanted to be with a doctor i mean yes obviously i'm thinking of tegan uh but there are other examples as well you know there's the degrees of turlo turlo was there under false pretenses as well whereas this time i think this is a new companion a new character who really embraces what the doctor can show her oh she's she's absolutely fantastic i i have really enjoyed following rain's mm. uh travels in the tardis and especially in these two stories i i think for me i'll go a step further and she's really a hark back to like a traditional 60s Doctor Who companion, like you say, Jam, someone that actually wants to be there, someone that isn't there with an ulterior motive or wants to get off and get back to Heathrow or wants to kill the Doctor or has a, a, an amazing convoluted backstory and is afraid of clowns and all that sort of stuff. She's just a straightforward companion who is just dazzled by all these futuristic things, both in this story and the next one, Earth Aid, even more so. She's just there, I mean, wide-eyed, just really enjoying yourself as for the story itself i'm i'm going to dive in first guys and say i wasn't that impressed at all with animal um it really really let's just say it it bored me it really did I, i i was totally confused about what the story actually was it seemed to go through many many shifts throughout its entire four episodes First, it was about the Doctor and his friends trying to find the uh, anarchists or terrorists that were terrorising the university. Then it was about these um, plant creatures that were created in the laboratory. And then it suddenly shifted to these incredibly annoying, very polite, with ulterior motive, aliens that suddenly arrive and, you know, want to take over the world. Do you know, um, that's an interesting set of comments. I mean, my my feeling about Animal was that it was very much in the mould... Well, to me, it felt like a cross between a a late period Pertwee story and uh, a Doctor Who magazine comic strip. In uh, as much as it, it, there, there were great undertones of uh, really strong undertones of the Green Death going on there, I thought. Um, I thought there were some great, some, some lovely character moments between uh, the main protagonist and his girlfriend. You know, and it, so you know there was a big, uh, a very wide dramatic canvas being uh, being being presented there. Um, the only thing that got me about it was I thought it was a little bit overlong. If I'm totally honest, I'm sure it could have been told in slightly less time than it was, but I, but I, but I still quite enjoyed it, and I loved the subtle wordplay um, that's at the heart mm. of this. I don't know, I don't, I don't know if I'd want to expose that, but there is something quite, quite. Uh, it, 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 what, do you know what, Trevor? I, I kind of grown with you a little bit. It's, it's a bit like it was like a bit <laughs> like a pun, but when it came through, I it thought it was that... a terrible pun. I mean, when I then went and looked up who wrote this, and it's an Andrew Cartmel script, and that really yeah. seemed to explain all because. 
the the latter half of the story basically hinges around this what must have been considered at the time an incredibly clever play on words and when it's finally revealed as to what it is and and like you say Tom it shouldn't be spoiled here but I I just groaned and went what was the point of even doing that clever pun other than to make the listener shake their head I'm I'm not sure well it was the 80s they did you know, it, the past is a different country they find different things funny there Hmm. Yes, but it's not the 80s. We're, we're doing this for a modern audience. And sure, it, it still has to have that flavour of the, you know, the era it was originally intended for. But you then I'm sure they've done modifications and, and changes to it to bring it up to date. So in inverted commas, the, the modern audience can enjoy it as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the scripts weren't actually written uh, for this story. So there's been an awful lot of development recently uh, i think the concept was there and, and and the concept has been talked about by andrew cartmel ever since doctor who has taken off the air and uh, to the point where by i think fandom doesn't know what's real now and what's been made up um but i i actually quite like this story i have to say i mean it's interesting tom listening to your comparison um saying that it feels a little bit like a Pertwee story or a late Pertwee story, perhaps, with, with mixed with a comic strip. For me, this this was very, very firmly a season 26 story. Um, it, it felt where the Doctor and Ace would naturally progress to after survival. The only other medium that's made me feel like that is reading the early Virgin New Adventures. And this, for me, is 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 a little bit like a Virgin New Adventure. And I understand what you're saying about the Green Death. Uh, I think the animal rights activists was yeah, kind of plugged into that. But Trevi's also right. That's a subplot here. And uh, I, I think the, the really weird aliens at the end. And again, this entire season, for me, uh, its major letdown has been the realisations of the various different alien races uh, that it's presented. I either can't understand them or I laugh at them or I just don't believe their motives. I just think they sound too silly. But having said that, you look at, lo- you look at some of the monsters and aliens that we got in the last two years of the McCoy era and they would have fitted in perfectly. So it is a little bit of a pastiche, I think, to 80s Doctor Who. Um, clearly brought up to date to a degree, but not hugely. I didn't mind so much the um, aliens in this one and their, how shall one put it, peculiar way of communicating and their speech patterns. I kind of got used to that. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to be on board with, okay, the, you know, the universe is filled with lots of wonderful and weird creatures. And this just happens to be the way that these creatures who are called, for goodness sake, the Numlocks. I know. Who thought that up? <laughs> was was Andrew Cartman on his keyboard last yep. night and, yep. and going, yep. oh my God, I've got to come up with a name for this alien race. All oh, I'll look at my keyboard. We'll call them the Numlocks. Does that mean <laughs> the next Andrew Cartmill script is going to have a monster called the Caps Lock? <laughs> or QWERTY no I, I agree <laughs> for me everything about the alien race was a bit silly I, I I, could listen to them but I was thinking my god because their speech patterns were so slow it took them ages to say a sentence they were given a heck of a lot of dialogue to get out as well so you were thinking oh, this is going to really extend the play and I think uh, Tom it may have been you who said this is slightly too long and I think that's certainly about 10% of this entire play is really slow laboured speech and I'm, I'm sure we'll be able to play an example of that for you. This way, gentlemen. The 17th born thanks you, Doctor. The 18th born thanks you, Doctor. 
I say gentlemen, you understand that I was not implying you were either gentle or men. The 17th born understands you. The 18th born understands you. Now, here's the information you requested, and you can get started. The 17th born thanks you. Not quite as bad as the Metatraxi, which, if you like, are the season 27 main monsters. And, and for me, they just didn't work at all. They really hurt my ears. Um, but as I said, they are, both the Numlocks and the Metatraxi are in keeping with the way Doctor Who was made uh, back then. If we're going to be talking about speech patterns, there's one thing that really drove me up the wall this time. I'm on board with, with the way Sylvester McCoy characterises his doctor. He has a doctor that enunciates a lot of words very clearly, um, probably over-enunciates certain words. That's part of his character. But in this story, every word he says was so laboured, so over-pronounced. And I'll play a little example here, I think, from uh, the beginning of episode three, which might show you what that's like. But this is a science university. I dare say one of the thousands of extremely bright scientists residing here would eventually have worked out some means of communicating with the aliens floating over their heads in a spaceship the size of a mountain. That was just a small sample of what Sylvester was doing with the Doctor in this story. Every sentence he seemed to roll, every single R he seemed to overplay every single word and it drove me up the wall after a while. And it really seems to be a one-off because I've never really noticed it in any of his other performances. It just seems to be what he did for Animal. Oh, I have. I have noticed it. There are a couple of the big finish plays that are set at the beginning of the Seventh Doctor's um, timeline within Big Finish. Uh, Unregenerate is, is the one I'm thinking of. And he does. When, when, he, when Sylvester McCoy is required to go back to the Doctor that he performed on television, that's precisely the mechanisms that he uses. He, he will enunciate uh, every single word. He roll his R's a lot, particularly when it's not necessary. And it, so much is said through intonation as opposed to actual dialogue. And I think that's just the way McCoy chooses to play it. And yes, it is evident. It is evident. I think it's evident in all four of these plays, not just Animal. But for me, I'm I'm okay with that. I really am okay with it. I think that's him just visiting the Doctor at an earlier play, uh, period in his timeline. What I noticed about the uh, Seventh Doctor is that when he's called on to emote and do the big speeches and shout, then it all seems to get a little bit unstable and shaky and... It's not the most convincing way that the character can deliver his lines. But when the Seventh Doctor becomes intimate and small and darkly melancholic, which is one of my favourite phrases for uh, his audio portrayal, then it's totally believable. Um, you know, th there's always a sense of Wizard of Oz about the Seventh Doctor, and as much as it was a big, booming voice and you were a little bit cowed by it, but never terribly convinced, and you open the door, and there's this little guy peddling away like hell, trying to make it all real. And it's at that point, when you've got the reveal of the little man doing his best in the universe, that the Seventh Doctor is most effective. I'm thinking of moments of uh, moments in A Death in the Family, where that character is absolutely stellar. Um, so yeah, that, that, that would be my contribution to this. The Seventh Doctor is at his best when he's small. Maybe it's because I haven't visited a Seventh Doctor story in audio for, for quite some time, probably about three or four months now, I'd say. Um, and suddenly jumping back into Animal, it really hit me because I didn't get that same feeling when I listened to Earth Aid. Maybe my ear tuned into his mannerisms or something, I'm not sure, but yeah. 
Well, maybe that's mm-hmm. actually the reason why you picked up on it this time because you haven't listened to McCoy on audio for some possibly. time. Yeah, it was possibly. also supposed to be set directly after survival. So, yeah. Anyway, w- this, a review of Animal wouldn't be complete if we didn't talk about a particular guest star in as much as Angela Bruce. Brigadier Winifred Bambera makes a return uh, to Big Finish. I mean, this is the first time she's done anything Doctor Who related since her appearance in Battlefield. And how, how did hearing her voice, uh, which in my view hasn't changed at all, um, affect your enjoyment of this show, guys? She was great. It, it it was fantastic to hear her again. And and like you say, James, she she hasn't changed since 1989 when she did Battlefield. What I suppose reduced her performance for me was her annoying sidekick or her annoying 2IC or whatever it was, that guy who was afraid of everything. Mm. He, he was afraid of danger. He was afraid of heights. He was afraid of platforms. He was afraid of aliens. He was afraid of getting squished. That's what really ruined it. I would have preferred that Brigadier Win- Winifred Bambera would have chosen a bit more of, of a resourceful and strong 2IC. I remember thinking he's a bit of a rubbish soldier. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's terrible. How how did he ever get through basic training? Well, this is it. And all of the places you could end up, you end up in unit, and you, you're scared of your own shadow. But having said that, I thought it was was quite a good portrayal of someone who was very scared. I suppose with these stories, it's really hard not to start thinking: what if this story had been produced for TV? What would we be getting? And I'm not sure. I can't even remember that guy's name. He's just so terrible. But um, what that two IC would have been like if we actually saw him on screen, he 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 would have been a yellow-bellied coward, I think. I, I think it's fair to say that Animal's got plenty to recommend it. Not least Beth Chalmers' pre- uh, performance as Rain Creevy. Um, the, the supporting cast come across very very well. There are some believable twists and turns. It's a romp. It's definitely a romp. Perhaps a little bit too long, um, but it's an Andrew Cartmel story. So you know we, we've got to you know we've just got to accept that some parts of it may great, but other parts of it are absolutely absolutely stellar so it's a very, very much a mixed bag this forms part of a continuum of stories um and in the next story we meet a doctor who never was mr patterson joseph so just before we talk about him i was lucky to bump into him not that long ago right so i'm joined by the great actor mr patterson joseph and today you've been working on the lost story earth aid Yes, The Lost Story Earth Aid, which came to me a couple of weeks ago, and uh, as with all actors, it was just, yeah, okay, <laughs> it's Doctor Who, it's Sylvester McCoy, yes. So there was no question, and um, it's, a, it's a great story, actually, and a, a wonderful story. Well, you have, quite, you have quite a good background in doing science fantasy uh, in a BBC costume, costume way. I mean, how, how do you approach the character that you're playing in, in, in this respect? Well, for me, the first thing is always obviously read the script and you find out what people say about the character and then you find out what the character says about themselves, how they speak and how you think they might speak. You try to imagine what they'd be like walking around meeting a real person. And uh, for me, this character, Victor Espinosa, the Earth Aid worker, struck me uh, as as a a really clear character because the first thing he does is sing a sea shanty Mm. which has the words Cape Cod girls ain't got no combs (laughs) which is weird but you'd think that sounds kind of American so that's introduced that kind of American accent into the character and thankfully here in the studio they said yeah let's try that let's see what what works we changed a couple of words here and there but Mm. it, it worked really well with the script so that was the beginning of the building of the character Cod girls ain't got no combs. Heave away, heave away. How interesting. Comb their hair with 
codfish bones. Heave away, heave away. Codfish bones. A traditional rowing song. Found a way for safeness, storm. Heave away, heave away. Does he even know we're here? Let's find out. Why don't you introduce yourself, Captain? Haul her up and head for home. Heave away. Uh, 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 away. Excuse me? Yes? I'm the captain of the Vancouver. Yes. Your escort ship? Yes. Please stop saying yes. I know. What do you know? Who you are. And who are we? A landing party from the Vancouver. You were bound to turn up sooner or later. I have to ask, uh, about a year ago, there was some talk that you yourself may have been cast as the Doctor. Really? I, I didn't hear anything about this, Tom. Really? <laughs> <laughs> really gotcha. No, I, I, was, I was filming in Botswana and South Africa mm. at that point. Uh, and so when my agent sent me an email saying, oh, you might get a call from the Daily Star, I think it was, to say that you're up you know, you might be in line for Doctor Who. I laughed. I thought it was the funniest thing on earth, but the most wonderful thing as well. So I texted around all my friends until somebody sent me a text back saying, yes, you're seven-to-one favourite on Paddy Power. All right. <laughs> then I thought, my gosh, this could actually be be something more than just a, you know, a Daily Star rumour. And, um, yeah, I was considered, and I was incredibly flattered to mm. have been considered. And uh, to have reached a point in in um, well English television, British television, and and in my career, that I could be asked, but also that nobody would go, you can't possibly have a black Doctor Who. Mm. That's an evolution in the 22 years that I've been out uh, of drama school. Um, I think if it had happened 22 years ago, there would have been a furore, or people would have just not even thought about it. it wouldn't have been considered to to be a possibility. Uh, and now it is, and so hopefully one day there will be a black Doctor Who. Yeah. And there will be a woman, or there will be an Asian person. They will Now, I think, the, the door is open for anybody, so... so think you've, you've already taken part in the in the TV series. Yeah. You, you worked opposite Chris Frecklestone. Oh, yeah. Was, 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 that, was that an interesting experience? Yeah, it was, because I think um, we, we have... A, the, we share... Um, we have some mutual friends and share, share the same agency, and um, the rumour about him him doing it and then him doing it and what that was all like, the build-up of all that, was very close to to, to my to me, really, and to the, to the people around me. So um, when it came, I was really excited about it. I didn't think for a second about not... or considering not doing it. Um, and, uh, and the script was great. Great script. Yeah. Uh, Bad Wolf. What happened? It's all right. It's the trans, Matt. Does your head in. Get a bit of amnesia. What's your name? Right. But where's the doctor? Just remember, do what the android says. Don't provoke it. The android's word is law. What do you mean, android? And the part was great. I mean, and the best part of it, Tom, was to be killed by a Dalek. <laughs> actually got to be killed by a Dalek. My only slight disappointment is that you don't see the actual disintegration. Oh. But you do see me screaming and putting my hands up, and I just think that's fantastic. And having one of those things rolling towards you yeah, yeah, yeah. is a once-in-a-lifetime experience. It's, it's a wonderful performance. The, the eyes are boiling in the head. There's a real sense of panic. Yeah. It's quite, very, very claustrophobic because you realise, oh, no! It's a wonderful performance. Well, thank you very much. Do you have any plans to return to Big Finish? Uh, yeah, they've asked me if I'm around because I don't live in the country, so sometimes uh, it's difficult for me to come over for one-day jobs, which this has been. Uh, if I'm around, and I know I'm going to be around to uh, to let them know, and hopefully I'll be doing another one. 
Perfect. It's going to be great to hear you in Earthaid, and we look forward to hearing you in other Big Finish audio plays. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Take care. Thank Okay, Tom, it sounds like you had a fantastic time just sitting down with Patterson Joseph there. The Doctor Who Never Was, which sounds like an episode title in itself, doesn't it? I think all that remains is for us to say thank you once again uh, to David Richardson and all of his colleagues at Big Finish for allowing Tom access. Um, it's, I'm, I'm glad he didn't wreck the place and I'm glad he didn't disturb the actors working. But let's move on, guys. <laughs> uh, let's, let's move on to discussing uh, the play that was actually being recorded when you were there, Tom, Earth Aid. So tell me again. How did the Doctor just happen to be meddling with your translator? I said, no more questions about the Doctor! I think you've upset him. Better sexy warriors do not become upset! These ones certainly seem to. But stay away from them. Better sexy warriors take revenge! Look out! Uh, are you alright? I, I, I can't get up. Not with these on. Alright, give me your hands. Thank you. I'm only doing this because I have no choice. I'm not going to take my eye off you. Understood. Puny human stranger, come near us again and see what happens. I must say, I must say, after being disappointed personally with Animal, I listened to Earth Aid and went, yes, this is it. This is Doctor Who. I really, really enjoyed this. And while the story itself does have some major flaws, which maybe I, I might mention later, um, I really enjoyed it. I think the, the, the pace of the story was there, that it kind of papered over a lot of what was going on, that you kind of excuse some of the leaps and logic that did occur during it for me. I, I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, Rain Creevy again was fantastic. Her just wide-eyed enthusiasm as being part of the TARDIS team. Um, her and Ace really seem to be getting along well now. Um, you know, they're almost working as a tag team with the Doctor, you know, splitting up and... Um, having their little separate missions during this story. Um, I, I thought The Seventh Doctor was fantastic. A lot of his little mannerisms and uh, things that he said uh, during the story, a joy to listen to. Uh, Earth Aid really ticked all the boxes for me. Yeah, and uh, I, I think in, in shock horror, I'm going to agree with Trev. I think it was an excellent story. And uh, I, I think there were some small drawbacks uh, as well. I'm, I'm not so certain Ace would be such an inept captain of a starship. Um, I think there were some of the questions that she was asking and uh, the way that she simply didn't have a clue what to say uh, didn't ring completely true of her character. Um, given that the situations that she's been through in the last series on telly, um, you'd have thought she'd have been a little bit more prepared uh, for, for stuff like this. I, I thought it was a very, very clear link in with uh, the Star Trek universe, really. I mean, she was captain of the Enterprise, fundamentally. And uh, I think for the majority of the um, of the play, you, you just followed a Star Trek plot. So, you know, there was there was a threat on the big screen. They got in a shuttlecraft. They went to investigate. They met aliens. They met strangers. Um, they, they, they met the character that Patterson Joseph played, who I thought was uh, was a thoroughly uh, exciting and entertaining character. You never quite knew um, the direction that character was going to take. And uh, yeah, for me, it was it, it, this was a romp. Uh, this was a romp in space. This is a little bit like um, uh, I'm trying to think of the uh, the Christmas big finish story that Gareth Roberts and Clay Hickman wrote. It was Bang Bang a Boom, I think, which again was a kind of Doctor Who meets Deep Space Nine. And this was a more straight version of that kind of story for me. Um, the the only thing that I didn't like particularly was the conclusion. Um, 
which basically copies a fairly major plot point in the crimes of Thomas Brewster in as much as a sentient planet features. And uh, of course, if you want to look at modern day television, then that's very true of House in The Doctor's Wife as well. But but fundamentally, I, I really enjoyed this as well. It was the same length as, uh, as Animal, and yet the time passed in my head about... 100% faster. It was uh, it was really really good. I really enjoyed all the characterization in this. Um I particularly liked Yannikov uh who really didn't believe Ace for a moment. And I think his suspicion and the way that he uh, interacted with Shepstay, I think it is, uh really made the supporting cast because you had Ace being as you say uncertain as a starship captain. Uh but then you've got these two characters going like she's in charge of a starship this is actually quite serious um so yeah i i i really enjoyed it i am biased because i sat listening to the audio and i got to meet mm -hmm. the people creating it but uh in terms if i had to say which of the two stories that we're talking about animal or earth aid do i prefer it would be earth aid um because i enjoyed the story despite the metatraxy well, actually, I, I really enjoyed the metatraxy and i also enjoyed the other alien creatures we had in this story the uh slugs that were in the uh, uh, grain silo, which we encounter, I think, in episode two or three. I, I thought they were really enjoyable. I mean, the metatraxy for me seemed to remind me a lot of the tetraps from uh, Time and the Rani, um, and, and I'm wondering whether that was intentional or not. In their speech patterns, in the way they carried on, and they're almost, I suppose, you know, a little bit hive mind type mentality. One thing for me, and I mentioned before about the, the logic leaps in the story, um, at the end of Animal... Rain Creevy left the TARDIS crew, basically, because she'd learned her father had been killed and she needed to go find out what was going on with that. One of the major points at the beginning of Earth Aid is her return to the TARDIS crew, and she's basically put there as a trap as part of the story. Now, I, I didn't really understand what that was all about and why she needed to be laid there as a trap. And then there was another trap laid on top of that to entice the Doctor and his crew to come to this particular space vehicle. Um, that, that seemed to be a little bit unclear to me as, as to why that actually had to occur. I'm not sure I can shed any light on that, to be honest with you. But what, uh, what I will be able to say is that I quite liked it. And I, I liked the way that, um, well, on the first time the Doctor and Ray meet back in Thin Ice, and uh, that, that's that much um, talked about scene where Rain opens the safe and the Doctor is inside it. And that situation is completely reversed in uh, Earth Aid. Um, the Doctor opens a safe and Rain is inside. I, I just think it worked quite nicely, I have to say. Um, but I'm not entirely certain the reasons why or, or, or what led. Yeah. I, I think if you were to listen to all four of these stories in one sitting, I mean, it, it would take up a lot of time, but maybe it would be a little bit clearer, perhaps, because there's a lot of smaller points, I think, um, that are within Animal that are picked up in Earth Aid. But I had to think, oh, I'd forgotten that. And, um, yeah, maybe this is one of those um, particular maybe, problems. Maybe. I mean, maybe it's the same symptom that we talked about last week with RTD bringing back the Cybermen, that he mightn't be able to explain it very well, but he's brought them back anyway because it makes for a good story. So I, I sort of got that impression with Rain that they had to get her back into the story. They had this fantastic idea where they could, as you say, reverse the situation that happened in Crime of the Century, have rain inside the safe with the Doctor opening it. And they wanted to do that. But I'm not sure the whole reason for that was particularly well thought through. But really, for me, even with all those things happening, the, the story itself made up for it, that the pace of the story was really good. Um, 
that it didn't really worry me like it did with Animal that that there were these plot holes in there because you know the characters were so engaging that it kind of glossed over all that for me. Yeah, absolutely, and that's precisely what Tom was saying. Fundamentally, um, I, I think certainly you mentioned Yannikov, Tom, um, about him being the only one really who picked up on the fact that Ace wasn't a genuine starship captain. She didn't know half the things that she ought to have known. And yet he was made out to be a baddie. And that's very, very similar to the device that we discussed when we were talking about the Aztecs. And I don't know if you remember, um, the, the, the main villain, if you like, is Latoxel. And Latoxel is the only one who knew that the Doctor and company were imposters. And yet he is presented to the audience as a baddie. And exactly the same happens uh, within EarthAid and, and, and Yarnikov. And I like that little device when it's used. I, I think it's done really, really well. And, and you also mentioned the fact that uh, the Doctor knows how to fly a spaceship. I wonder whether he picked that up off of Stephen Taylor. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> There's James's long bow, and he's drawing it. My goodness. See that? See that? See, there's the thing. There's another. There's another companion that that was a little uh, poorly served on TV. That's done rather well in audio of late. Brilliantly so, uh, in audio. Go and check the Stephen Taylor Big Finish Companion Chronicles. They are absolutely brilliant. But I think this is the first story that the three of us have talked about that we were we're pretty much in agreement on. And uh, I, I can't remember the last time that happens, but. I think that's a hearty endorsement from, from the DWP camper van. Hey James. Yeah, Trev. Hello. Have you heard about the uh, Big Blue Box Convention happening at the Trinity Theatre at Tunbridge Wells? Oh, is that the one with Leela attending Louise Jameson? Yes, you're exactly right, James. How did you know that? It's happening on the 14th of January, 2012. Oh, well, given that it's a Big Blue Box Convention, I just hopped in mine, went forward a couple of months, sat in the panels, and it was really, really good. And I can tell you, now that I've come back in time, you really need to go. It's only £25 a ticket, for a day convention, as you say, Trevor, at the Trinity Theatre in Tunbridge Wells. It's also going to feature Susan Jameson, no relation to Louise, but she plays Mrs. Wibsey in the BBC plays featuring none other than Tom Baker and Richard Franklin. Well, that's, that's confusing. I saw Susan Jameson's name there and I thought, ah, that must be the daughter of Louise Jameson, but no, that's not the case. No, it's not. Definitely not the case, Trevor. No. They're also going yeah. to be joined by John Dorney, Paul Miles and Jonathan Morris. Now, Paul Miles, he created Iris Wildtime, do you know? Oh, absolutely, yes. Mm. And Jonathan Morris, Thomas Brewster. My goodness, what a star-studded lineup! And of course, you know that already because you've been there and seen it. What was it like? It was fantastic. There was screenings, there were panel discussions, there were signings, and a whole lot more. And I think sci-fi and Doctor Who fans in general are going to really enjoy this event. Yeah, what, what do those who haven't got a TARDIS like you do, James, what do they need to do? to attend this Blue Box convention? Well, they can log on to www.trinitytheatre.net and buy a ticket, or they can phone a box office on 01892 678 678. And as I said earlier, tickets cost £25, a mere snip for a one-day convention. You'll be there, or you've already been there, or you will be there, or something. I will be there. Yeah, this, this time travel stuff is doing... Some major stuff with my head, mate. I'm sorry. Oh, well, you better go and have a lie down then. And in the meantime, listeners, make sure you go and buy your tickets from trinitytheatre.net. 
All proceeds from this event go to Compaid, a charity supporting disabled people in Kent. For more information, visit www.compaid.org.uk. Wow, that sounds amazing. And exclusively, we can announce a further attendee to the show. It'll be... <gasps> Me, yes. All right, fine. Calm your enthusiasm. Yes, I'll be attending with James uh, and our good friend Ian to uh, conduct a couple of interviews with the mighty Louise Jameson, uh, as well as some of the other rather lovely and very generous uh, attendees of the conference. So, yes, I'm going to be going along there. James, it'll be lovely to see you in the flesh for the second time. I'll be looking forward to meeting uh, one of my favourite companions as well. So, yes, uh, it'll be good to get down and have a date of Doctor Who. Trev, only sorry that you can't be there. Oh, but I'll be having fun over here in the uh, DWP camp event. Uh, Michelle will be joining me. We will be recording together for that episode and we'll be having a listen and enjoying what you guys get up to at Big Blue Box. Yeah. Looking forward to it heaps. And, and since, since Trevor and I recorded that trailer that you just heard, uh, the guys over at Big Blue Box have released a Facebook page or they've published a Facebook page. So you can go over, go and check to see what the current... Um, announcements are uh, about that convention it's a one-day convention it's 25 pounds per ticket it's in Tunbridge Wells at the Trinity Theatre which is just down the road from Tunbridge Wells station and this is the really big thing guys all proceeds go to charity uh, in particular go to a charity called Compaid who support disabled people uh, in Kent so really good uh, event for Doctor Who fans and a fantastic cause as well next week on the show everyone we are going to be going christmas because it's going to be so close to when christmas comes out i believe it's due out on the 25th of december this year we're going to be having a story <laughs> that's going to be all about doctor who and christmas all the way back to the feast of stephen and the william hartnell era all the way up to date with the christmas specials in the new era and we're going to be having a special guest with us in the dwp camper van to talk about Christmas and Doctor Who. It's going to be so exciting. I'm very much looking forward to it. And is this the episode, or is this the recording that I bring my Christmas crackers and party hats to, or is that going to be our special Christmas episode? I think we'll have enough Christmas crackers and poppers for this episode and any other episode you want to pop and crack them Wonderful. in, James. Okay, I will do so. I'll bring my party bag along with a large bottle of champagne. It should be fun. Listeners, right. make sure you tune in next week. And in the meantime, it's bye from me. And bye from me. And yes, I'll see you very shortly. <laughs> and bye from me too. That was the Doctor Who Podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it into feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who Podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care. Oh, sorry. My, my audio today, I can hardly hear Tom. It's really... Yeah, no, it's all right. It, I don't know if it's static or Tom. Um, I'm not sure. But uh, anyway, w this, a review of Animal wouldn't be complete if we didn't talk about a particular guest star in as much as Angela Bruce, Brigadier Winifred Bram... <laughs>